words of one of America's greatest poets. Mm. Rolling, 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 rolling. I forgot the poet laureate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Durst. Mm-hmm. The mighty Fred. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> I, I have no... All of his songs should end in amen. So <laughs> shall it be. The mighty Durst. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, there is one thing that you and I kind of talked about uh, mm. this week. And it's weird that it pertains to this week's film as well. But I just wanted to make very clear that you and I have a... It may have sounded sarcastic when praising a certain actor. Mm -hmm. But goddamn, Christopher Lee fucking rules, man. He's the fucking business. Because I was in... It was independent of this. I was watching... uh, Dracula Rises from the Grave and The Horrors of Dracula. Oh, hell yeah. Dude... Yeah, they're Hammer films, and they're kind of cheesy and whatever. Christopher Lee fucking kills it as Dracula, but, man. But think about, we, we talked about Transgression last week. Those films at that time, for the type of horror that was out, there was Super Grindhouse, okay? Or there were, you know, your Universal Monsters. There, there was no in-between. They took adult themes, they added nudity, the violence was more graphic. It was unlike anything else that had come out. Oh, and they look like state, like actual stage sets. Mm-hmm. And it was like, man, these look awesome. And it was a different style of acting, too. And, yeah, I grew up on that shit, because we got like the, the highly cut version for Creature Features on Saturday morning, so you'd go watch Son of Spenguli, and then at 2 o'clock, the Creature Features would come on. So it was horror movies. You watch Cisco Kid all morning, and then you'd watch Creature Features, and invariably it was a hammer. Mm-hmm. Or, or some, something that is so cut that you couldn't even tell what it originally was, because they probably showed Argento movies, but they cut out all the stuff that made it an Argento movie, and it was just this confusing hodgepodge of people looking in other rooms confused. And just watching uh, the horror of Dracula, like, man, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee mm-hmm. on screen together. Those are the two drunkest men who have ever lived. <laughs> Richard like, Harris and Peter O'Toole. Yeah, I was going to say, there's no way that those two are just absolutely soused. And it's amazing that they got any lines out whatsoever. Yes, you, you think it's gravitas and you think it, you know, they're, they're not moving and they're very stentorian. No, they're drunk as fuck. And if, if uh-huh. they move, they'll start giggling. Yeah. Oh, Peter, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, Richard Burton, who it's not true, but I. I think it was Richard Burton, always has the rumor about him that he drank so much that they found crystallized alcohol in his spinal cord. <laughs> they say shit about like that to Lemmy, about Lemmy, too. Yeah, like, yeah, that's not really a thing that's possible, but when you are having rumors like that what spread was the about Lemmy, you... What was the Lemmy one day he went to go get his... He wanted to get a blood transfusion like Keith Richards? They said, no, you'd fucking die in two seconds. You're, yeah, probably. You, you don't have enough blood in your blood. Yep. <laughs> Which sounds about right. It's all Jack Daniels and meth. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Somebody was telling me that they knew somebody who worked at uh, one of the venues. Mm-hmm. And, like, Lemmy sat there all night drinking. And what are you going to say? Like, hey, Lemmy, we're closing up. No, you fucking just give Lemmy drinks until he's done. Yep. They were like, yeah, at the end of the night, he just pulled out his little thing of tinfoil, did a two to speed, had one more drink, and said, thank you very much, and left. I get the stamina of that, man. Jesus Christ. And from all accounts, like, the nicest guy that you could ever fucking meet in your life. Oh, yeah. Now, just picture this. Had he not done that to his body, he'd probably live to be about 200 years old. Or he'd be dead at, like, 48. Yeah. Because I could see him, like, somebody like that who just, like, his entire life was music. If his entire life was, like, working out, he'd had a heart attack by, like, 52. (laughs) He'd have been, he'd have been buff, he'd have been a little buff Danzig-looking motherfucker. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to crack the lid on a Danzig conversation. No, no, we don't have that kind of time. Except for just, what a comical human being. (laughs) Yes. Well, just about everybody involved in that band. I'm just like, what a bunch of knuckleheads. Yeah. Speaking of fucking knuckleheads, hey everybody, welcome to Horror Vomit. We talk about horror movies so you don't have to. My name is Chris Pfaff and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James Moreno, I'm the other one of your hosts. And fuck you for making me follow that energy again. Yeah, I know, I'm trying, because we gotta we gotta pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Hey, hey. Yeah, thank you. I, I like I lo- your hat. Thank you, it's very sky It is very sky mm-hmm, To match my tattoos. Uh, and speaking of shit from the 80s. <laughs> fuck you. This week... <laughs> we are talking about 1980s Fade to Black, 
Written and directed by Vernon Zimmerman. Starring Dennis Christopher as Eric Binford, Tim Thomerson as Dr. Jerry Moriarty, and Gwyn Guilford as Anne Ashenbull. Mm-hmm. With, with a dash of Mickey Rourke in there. Yeah, and then the um, sensei from um, Cobra Kai. Oh. When he was like, what, 10, 11? How old was he in this movie? I don't know. No, but that was him. I was like, oh my God, that's what's his butt from uh, Karate Kid. So, James? Yes. Would you mind if I went first? I absolutely would love to hear what you have to say. Okay. So, I don't think in the history of the show I have ever come into an episode not having an opinion on a film. I, I don't know what to think of this. I don't know if I like it or not. And I, I think a lot of my opinion will be informed by our conversation here today mm-hmm. because this movie is baffling to me. It is. And there's, I had to look at this in two minds because I had to look at it once. Is if I had seen this movie in 1981, because I'd seen posters of this motherfucker everywhere everywhere that you know that that two-faced look that picture was on billboards it was on like mag like when the movie came out they were they were pushing it apparently nobody saw it but they were pushing it like you know it was an a-list movie um i also know that um when it finally got to the video stores which is where i got most of my movies um huge posters all over the place i guess it was iconic that picture was iconic Mm mm-hmm but yeah, that's the only thing I remember about it. But I, I, I was not into these kind of movies at that time. I mean, I saw a Nightmare on Elm Street at the theater because somebody dragged me. But you know, I wasn't going to go put this in on myself. You know, you know. So I try to think of it. What would I have? How, what would my reaction have been had I seen it at that age and looking at it critically? And it's a tough one because it's a real mixed fucking bag of a movie. Yes, and that's where. I guess my, for lack of a better term, confusion comes from because there are parts of this where I go, wow, mm-hmm. that's good. And then there are parts where like, why, well, why is any of this happening? Well, what the fuck is this movie? Well, and also I was trying the to The first take... half, I would say, is just a jumbled fucking mess. It is, but it is a weird, weird, beautiful mess. It is too. It's so interesting that I have a hard time looking away from it because it's so fucking weird well the thing is that they're okay they pegged a lot of things okay they pegged um youth culture in the 80s they pegged theater kids like a motherfucker they pegged you know like that oddball theater kid mm-hmm. and they pegged that beautifully they um I, th- I i tried to make a case most of the movie but because it was so all over the place that was right around the time pmrc was starting to get full swing that was starting to get a lot of leverage from the right wing it was starting to push 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 it was the you know the new morality all that stuff was starting to come in oh yeah tipper gore baby. yeah and i was trying to figure out which side of the fence they were coming down on that because it seemed like they were making a point but i couldn't tell the point because it was jumbled and there are parts where like it's genuinely funny mm-hmm. yes yes for no reason. And it's not like a, it's not like shtickle though, like you'd see in a traditional 80s movie, okay? Now, I will tell you the first part of this movie though, I swear to God, I thought it was going to be a softcore porn because they had Captain Porn Stash and, and Officer Hotness down in the basement. I was waiting for the, the bass to start. Oh yeah, when I was watching it, I'm pretty sure that I said to Kayla, oh, he's going to fuck that lady cop. Yeah, well, no, I, I was, I was, I was like, Oh my God, Doctor Jerry Moriarty. I was like, Oh my God, he's got a porn stash. I swear to God, in five minutes he's gonna. And I turn my head, I go to do something, I come back, I start dying laughing because my wife is doing the bass noises, bounce, and they're in bed, and I'm like, uh-huh. It's a porn. Oh my God. But then there are like legitimately deeply effective like emotional moments in this. Oh yeah, the um. Because the the um the guy who played the kid, whatever Dennis Christopher, yeah Dennis Christopher, he like in parts of it he was in great acting, you know. In parts of it, I'm like, why is he in this movie? Yeah, you know, this is not, this is not. Oh no! And that leads me to believe that that has to be direction. I'm I'm guessing because 
He was uh, really good in parts of this. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think he should have been trying to do the accents of other movie people. But, but th- I, I think add, that's actually really important. It adds to, to the, the, you know, the pathos. It adds to us feeling bad for him. Um, I think there was a whole storyline that either could have been expanded on or done without, which is the whole police side thing, the whole social commentary. Yes. You know, like the, D- Dr. Jerry Moriarty. <laughs> you have to say his Dr. Pornstash. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he's pretty unnecessary. Yeah. He's literally, I think, just there for comic relief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But to show, show the, the hit people's will, like this guy was straight out of, like everything he said sounded like it was from a 1968 peace movie. Uh-huh. But this is 1980. Mm-hmm. And yes, there were. And everyone hates him for it, right? But their idea, especially that police captain. But take a look at how different it was because in in movie shorthand in 1980, this guy was supposed to be this freewheeling hippie. He does say at one point that that's why the police chief hates. You know, man, that's why the police chief hates me. He right. thinks I'm just a leftover from the hippie era. But the visual shorthand was a slight shag, a little bit of hair over his ear. His mustache went a little bit down past his lips. Yeah, but now he's the hippie who grew up and now he's a professional. Yeah, well, it's like we're the, we're the yuppies. Yup, yup, yup. We were hippies and we grew up. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Had, had to throw that line in there. It was, it was just right there. But yeah, um, but, should, should but that's we... how different things got because in order to show somebody being counterculture, you got to pierce half their face, got to show visible something, and you can't just do a quick. Oh, he's got a shaggy haircut and a, a turtleneck. This guy is a wacky wild weed smoker. Say, so, well, there was the entire part where uh, officer walks down and sees him in his uh, basement cell okay. office. Just playing drums on his desk, tooting coke. No, he played a fucking harmonica. Oh, yes, 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 he's he did. fucking wailing the shittiest blues harmonica you've ever heard. Doing toots of coke in the basement of the police station. Scat singing in between. I was That dying. is exactly the kind of scene where I look at this film and I go like, what the fuck is this? It didn't need those two I, minutes. I have, that's why I have a hard time like having an opinion about this. But, <clears throat> excuse me, before we go any further, should we give a brief synopsis of this? Because it's quite an old movie, and I don't, I don't think a lot of people have taken the time to watch Fade to Black. No. So, Eric Binford is a film-obsessed young man who is uh, beaten down enough by just his entire life where he cracks and begins Committing murders based on his favorite old-timey films. Mm-hmm. As a, as a brief synopsis, and we'll get into all of this because, James, we have a lot to discuss. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, there, there's, like, parts that work and then parts that don't work. So which one do you want to start with? Um, because that's the thing. I don't know what doesn't work because, I mean, this film is what it is, and all of its weird wildness, I... I kind of love it, but I also kind of hate it. And I don't, I don't know, man. This so. movie made me feel wildly uncomfortable. <clears throat> and not in the ways I'm used to feeling uncomfortable watching horror movies. Okay? Um, for example, we've talked, I've talked about this before. I'll talk about it again, I'm sure. Embarrassment um, depicted in films is worse oftentimes to me than watching violence depicted in films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because in my head, violence I can defend against, embarrassment I can't. There, you know, so watching people break social rules that I didn't even know were there and then watch them being embarrassed for something I did, I probably would have fucking did too. I'm just like, oh, it's mortifying. So this movie made me wildly, wildly uncomfortable. So portraying somebody who... Just, again, beaten down by life, just never quite fit in, just had a shitty, shitty life the whole time. That was portrayed beautifully. And I don't think it is too much to even speculate, probably some sort of mental disability, Mm -hmm. because he's obsessive to the point where it's, uh, again, I don't want to sound like an asshole or anything, Mm -hmm. but beyond what's 
considered normal. Right. I he, guess. I yeah, he went he went past nerd to geek to oh my god, maybe you should leave the house once in a while. Yeah, l- obsessive <clears throat> to the point of compulsion. Yeah. But I will tell you that room, I've walked into that room a million times. Parts of my room looked like that room. In fact, I'd had a conversation I was like, you know, do kids still do that? This was even before I watched the movie. I I texted sorry, I was I typed it up on Facebook, but I'm like, you know, I'm typing to people with older kids, do they still hang all bunch of shit on the walls, you know, we used to do magazine things, articles, whatever we thought was cool would hang up on the walls. Or is it just you know, because everything's online, is it different now? So I don't but the, I think the consensus is no, most of their shit is curated online. And they'll share their shit online. They don't hang the shit up on the walls as much anymore. Yeah, because, I mean, he's got shit everywhere. Mm-hmm. And he, And cool shit, too. You're like, I, I, how much of that did he steal? Yeah. And here's another thing that, like, it's something I kind of love and something I kind of... Eh? The way he watches movies, he's always sitting with a Coca-Cola chain-smoking. Smoking. And what I think the movie has done is made him clearly stoned, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but he can't. They can't say he's stoned because he's constantly just blurry, red-eyed. Mm-hmm. Constantly, like, and then he smokes a joint in the car with the producer. Yeah. Later, and it doesn't seem to affect him any differently. Right. So presumably, he is always smoke stoned, chain smoking, drinking a Coca Cola. Mm, Dr Pepper, but yeah. No, it's Coca Cola. Dr Pepper's. It doesn't matter. The thing that I kind of love about it, though, is he halfway dresses up because he's always wearing his suit coat, his, like, gangster sport coat, yep. and hat, and no, no fucking pants. pants. <laughs> Half the movie, he's half undressed. And that's one of those things, like, I kind of love it, but also, why did you do that? <laughs> and picture this. This is a movie in 1981, and it was well-promoted. And there's a scene... Where he is stringing the yo-yo. Straight up jagging off. He is fucking working it. Not even, <laughs> it, leaving nothing to the imagination. I'm just like, holy shit. I think the, okay, we've often seen, hinted at where you see some guy's head bobbing a little bit, you know, or you'll see a, a quick hand motion. And we've often seen, you know, the bass solo scene. And we've watched a couple of movies with dudes just jerking off in sinks. Yeah. Two of them, I believe, back to back, if I recall. But that was, the back was turned. No. Exactly. The hand all the way down into rooting for shit. Yeah. Digging for gold, homie. And they don't cut away. It's a very long shot of him just grabbing his junk. And working it. Like, why is this here? I don't know, but they got, A, they got away with it, which is why I'm thinking that they were saying, fuck you, to the moral majority movement. But it was never outwardly said in the movie (laughs) which side it came down on, which was confusing because I wanted it to have an opinion on it if they were going to make light of it. Or maybe I was reading a theme that wasn't there because of the times. I don't know, but I was just like, tie a bow on it, do something, but they did not. But then one of the things that I really like about this and I think is really effective filmmaking is Eric Binford starts off as one of the most unlikable characters. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a slob. He's, all he does is sits in his apartment and chain smokes, watching movies. He's shitty at his job. He has to flat out, like, has to take the Vespa from work and gets yelled at for it, then has to ask for money because he lost the petty cash, mm-hmm. fucks up everything at his job. And think about this. For a film-obsessed person, what better job would you have than working in the film distribution warehouse? But the thing is, when I saw that scene, it completely took me out of the movie because in my head, movies are kept in these, you know, because I love movies, right? Mm -hmm. In my head, these movies that are going to these, that are kept in temperature-controlled, no, they're shitty-ass warehouse out in Bakersfield or wherever, you know? It's just this... Water on the floor, surprised rats haven't eaten 30 quarters of the film stock. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they're treating the films like that? No, no, they're hurting the films. 
Yeah, I mean, and then when he meets Marilyn at the diner, like, he doesn't interact like a person. Gets mad because they don't get, was it Creature from the Black Lagoon by him just going, all weird at a fucking diner, girls that he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Like, man, this dude kind of sucks. And throughout the film, end up almost feeling empathy for him. The further along, and as he is committing heinous crimes, they're inducing empathy for him. Like, how the fuck did you do that? This, like I said, I'm so conflicted with this movie because parts of it are really good. I think the only other thing that really pulled me out of the movie, and I'm just getting him out of the way, is when he was, there were two scenes, two or three scenes where that they absolutely weren't his hands. And it freaked me the fuck out badly. Because <laughs> usually it's well hidden. Like, you know, if somebody's playing guitar and a guy can't play the guitar, there's somebody behind them. Or, you know... Th- the ball juggling right behind David Bowie's balls, you know? Yeah. And, but they, they make it look okay. They did not attempt <laughs> to hide that. That was somebody else's completely different skin tone. The nails were off. I'm like, no, that's wrong. It fucked with me so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that's this movie and yeah. I don't know what to think about it. Again, cause there's so many things are so well done. And so many things are just slapped, like, it looked like they were just slapped together and thrown up there. Like, I was getting really mad. His very, the very first kill, when they had his Aunt Stella slash mom, you know, tapping on the door with her cane in her wheelchair and freaking out. And then he effectively pushes her down the stairs. Mm -hmm. And upon seeing her die, kiss of death, starring, you know, this long list of people just like... Man, still kind of fuck this dude. Yeah. But then he walks inside and he's staring at in the, the mirror and kind of laughing until it dawns on him of what he just did. And that's where this acting on Dennis Christopher is fucking incredible because you see the terror set in as he hears people outside who have found her. Because mm-hmm. there's no way that he can be connected to having killed her. It just looks like she fell down the stairs in her wheelchair. Mm-hmm takes a deep breath accepting what he just did and just washes cool water over his face Mm -hmm. and and you can see the inner turmoil in his face and it's fucking incredible like Mm -hmm. oh god damn you movie how did you all of a sudden make me almost feel like i was complicit in a murder and like well we can't tell anyone what we did Mm -hmm. but we just killed somebody Mm mm-hmm and then slipping into that psychosis because he's wearing the bright yellow gangster coat at mm-hmm. his grandmother's funeral. Well, see, and that's the other one that confused me. Remember when um, the two buddies he made the bet with? Not Mickey Rourke, but the other two? No, that was Mickey Rourke and the other guy. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was so young. He doesn't look like Mickey Rourke before his face got hey, all I Mickey Rourke. Hey, to be fair, no. Mickey Rourke now doesn't look like Mickey Rourke. Right, but I think of Mickey Rourke now. <laughs> yeah. But um, when they were Kenny na- Rogers looking motherfucker. Oh yeah! Oh my god, it's scary. But um, when they were in the alleyway with him and um, him and uh, Cobra Kai. Yeah. And he shoots old boy, but then the next day, it, Cobra Kai is acting like, I, I, well, what do we do now? <laughs> you just shot the guy. You shot our buddy. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you just got over the fact that you, this guy killed that guy. You didn't like that guy anyway. You're not going to try to do anything? You didn't say anything to anybody? That was weird. Well, I mean, are you talking about Mickey Rourke's friend? Yeah. He ran away before they found out that it was Eric. Oh, okay. He had okay. T- he took off, and since the gun was on Mickey Rourke, he didn't move. Okay, because I, I thought that when they were talking about it, it sounded like... Yeah, because they walk out of the police station. Yeah. Like, are they going to find the guy who did this? And Eric responds with... Uh, uh, was it? Uh, they get oh, yeah. all they do is get paid to ask questions and never figure it out, man. Okay, because uh, that was a these things go quickly, and this movie was jumbled. Yes, again, I but I think it was really, really well done. Again, after he paints his face and he goes out and he's watching uh, Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. and he chases the prostitute. It it doesn't look like he was trying to kill her. No, in fact, um. What three of the deaths were almost accidental. Right. He just happened. He may have been a tiny bit of the impetus for the eventual accident, but it wasn't like he planned the accident. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it wasn't so much that he pushed his grandmother. It's the electric part in her thing got stuck. So the first one was even an accident anyway. That's why she, that's why it's like when she went out on the, when she turned the corners, because part of it caught, 
but the motor was still running, and that's the only reason. So that was, you know, again, accidental. Uh-huh. The, the, her falling under the fence and jabbing her neck. Yeah. Oh, that was, a, it was beautiful because it was, again, during this period of the 80s, everything was traditionally over the top. You know, you're going to see people get, you know, corpse kebobbed with harpoons and shit. Right. This one, you see the fall, and you see the result. And, you, you know, the cut was quick, but it was done well enough that your brain filled in everything. Yeah, you know what happened. Right. So, a lot of competent filmmaking, a lot of competent cuts. Um, then to show Eric still in his Dracula thing, you know, having chased this woman, mm-hmm. kind of mortified. Mm-hmm. And then that psychosis, that movie psychosis kicking in and walking over and sucking blood off of her neck that was disturbing dude because it really was it hit me in that kind of henry of the uh henry portrait of a serial killer sort of way tableau tableau did then this wicked scene this scene right there it was like i'll put that up against any scary part of a lot of movies we've seen because just think of the reality of you know it was a fence like a fence picket through the neck right yes you could see the color of the fence. You could see the, and you could see a little bit of the dripping blood. You could see him go up and try to get some, put it in his mouth, and you could see him get down on his his mouth went on the actual wooden part to get some of that mm-hmm. blood up, and then it was all over his face, and it was so primal. Uh, the acting when um, when Binford is at, the guy played in Binford is um, acting to show emotions and acting that type of way. It's a very real, visceral type of thing. But then he follows direction to be broader or to match the acting styles of the other people. Because it seemed like a lot of it was um, like Irwin Allen TV, you know, TV studio kind of stuff in there. And then the older actors, I loved it when the two old guys were there and doing the scene. Oh, man. Are you talking about the guy who, like his former boss? Oh, and that guy too. I love that guy. That guy is his own character too. But when they had the the Dick Police um, the, uh, captain or whatever, okay. and the other old guy, there was another older guy. Yeah. And they were bitching about Moriarty or something, or they were yelling back and forth or something. But those guys came from like the same kind of acting school, and their scenes seem real. But when they went to go with when the captain was acting with Moriarty, because the styles were so different, it was like they were acting in two different films, and it threw me. Yes, it, they are very awkward scenes. Mm-hmm. But I think it is because we, we've we talked about this before in other movies, especially um, a lot of the indies that we talk about. You, you get a lot of theater, theater stock people. Then you get some people that have done television. You have some people that have done docs. And they're all very, very, very different. Because, you know, traditionally with theater, and you go from theater to movies... You have to tone down because you're you're playing to five feet away instead of five hundred feet away. So everything, all of everything that you've known about projection and everything you know about, you know, projecting your emotion, has to be so internalized that it's hard to match. So if you get theater actors that are even pushing it way down, and um, film actors that are trying to match that energy it's hard to balance because they're completely different styles of acting yeah like when uh just for example toward the end when moriarty confronts binford mm-hmm. and you know you are eric binford it's like okay man like <laughs> settle it down a little mm-hmm. but it's also one of those things that like man he's not a cop and he's also not a competent doctor <laughs> Nope. <laughs> yeah. You are Eric Binford. Hey, we're here to help you, man. And then he shoots him and just yells, Binford, you're out of your fucking mind. Like, well, that's, you're not a therapist either. Like, why, why are you here? Is it ever established why he is there? No. Again, you could have taken like a good 20 minutes of this movie. Anything involving them could have just been gone. <laughs> It could have just been gone. And, and the other thing, too, is apparently in order to be a female and get a a job in the city of um, Los Angeles, you have to, you know, you have to be at least model status, 80s model status, minimum to get a job as a mailman or a police officer in the city of L.A. in 1981. Just saying. Let's say, and 
one of the other things that I really liked was when you can tell that he's really starting to crack and he just walks around yelling movie shit at people. Yes. Now, I, and I loved a lot of the sets too. They did it at Groundman's. I mean, that, I bet you the entire budget of this whole movie was that last scene. Oh, I don't know. There's a lot in this. Yeah, but there's a lot that you don't really, I mean, this is Los Angeles and Hollywood. You, if you get the permit, everybody's hit. Yeah, fair. Okay. You know, so you're paying for permits. You, you you don't have to really block off. Just, hey, we're filming here. It's, again, Hollywood. In 1980. Yeah. Or even, I don't know if it was made in 79, released in 80. But Probably. either way. It was a little more seedy and a little bit more, you more apt to be able to do more guerrilla style things there too. But the use of Grauman's and the helicopters and everything had to cost all of the money. Whatever wasn't spent on film, it was was spent on that. And that was one of the other things that like really kind of brings me out of this movie though is, man, where is Binford get, getting all of this? Right, where did he get the goddamn Tommy gun? Yeah, where is he getting all of these elaborate things? Where did he get the fucking Dusenberg to drive up with his Tommy gun? Uh-huh. A working Tommy gun, mind you. Yes, and and granted, he shot up a top end hair salon, and then which again, that's one of those things that I find like a really good comedy beat because it's effectively a gangland killing. Yes, but not sudden. You know, like gangster gets killed in the barber shop. Right. That's how it happens. Or, again, you know, in old New York pulp stories. As a set piece, it's amazing. Okay. And then to modernize it to where it's this high-end uh, movie producer getting his hair done in this posh L.A. salon to have the that gangster reference, dude, it's so good. Well, even the little pictures, like the montage of pictures, everything was touched on. Every picture they showed, everything that you saw in the background was touched on in the movie. Either in a reference and a nod to, or you'd walk past the area where it was actually fucking filmed. You know what I mean? There, there are lots of little Easter eggs in this movie. It's a love story to that area. But it's also, it, oh, it, it's, it, it's confusing. But I, it, it, I think if I really, really want to think about it, I, I do like this movie. And I think I will like it better if I see it again. Because I was watching this again, trying to parse it out in my head. You know, trying to be critical about it the whole time. And I didn't get a chance to enjoy it. Yeah, it's one of those films that, like, I don't think it's fair to like critique it on the same levels like yeah in Impedigore or even like a Midsummer. like this isn't that movie mm -hmm. it's a black comedy with really deep emotional and pretty horrific horror elements and, it's and a real oddity and think about it it does speak to traditional slasher tropes horrible horrible abusive childhood okay um, then the obsession, yeah, a deep obsession. Um, the, the inciting incident, the death of his mother aunt. And I loved, I wish they had, cause I had to go back and rewind a couple times. Cause I'm like, Oh, that was weird. Oh, that was his mom. Had they kind of touched on it a little bit more, got a little more Norman Batesy in there. Yeah. But he never knew that the cop says it or the, no, because I went back and rechecked it. It might have been an acting choice or whatever. But he was like, all right, aunt. Like he knew. Oh. Because I had to go back because, you know, um, the, one of the few joys I have about my... Yeah, because there is a point where he calls her ma and she yells at him like, I'm not your ma. Your mm. ma died giving birth to you. Yes. Telling him that my life ended when you were born. Yes. And my career ended when you... You know, when you, it's all your fault. Why? Because you called and I came home and the accident happened. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm like, and so all these things that, that lead up to traditional slashers were there, but they didn't cheat us. They switched the bill on us because traditionally once that happens, it's, you know, it's, it's stab city. It's gruesome this, it's gruesome that. It's a rampage. It's this madman. No, this is this guy slowly cracking. And some of these were just sheer fucking accidents, except for the actual shootings. And near the end, it was just happened to have happened. And he was getting off on it eventually through that psychosis. 
And so all of these things were put together. They were just, had they been put together a little better, either loosen it up in a day in the life and have it all random happenstance and make it more documentary style or kind of fill us in a little bit more and, and linear the story up a little bit. And one of the things, again, as far as the filmmaking that I really like, and it's kind of a callback to last week, too, when we were talking about Calvert and mm-hmm. Bartell. Mm-hmm. Eric Benford's not a criminal mastermind. Oh, really. no. He's just kind of a dumbass, confused kid. Mm-hmm. And it shows in a lot of places. Because, I mean, and it's very clear that the cops don't know because there is no connection between a lot of these killings. Well, in... I was thinking about it too, and I was liking it. Um, you ever see Fort Apache of the Bronx with uh, Paul Newman? No. Well, I wouldn't say it's comedy verse. It's kind of like a jo- Joseph Wamba like cop thing. But um, the thing was, back then we were so used to having access to information at all times, okay, and crimes being solved with forensics, and you know, um, the national database. You can, you know, if this guy does this here. Back in the 80s, even up until the 90s, until things got really, really computerized. And, even, well, man, I say it stopped right around 2000, but it was real easy. A lot of times, one district didn't know what the next district did. So if you were three districts down, it might take, if, if the paperwork didn't clear through booking, you could get out. You know, if you were in for a week and it finally cleared, you could get up on five charges, but they weren't always together. You need to make extra phone calls or go here and there. So the fact of the matter is that he could have gotten away with some of these things. Oh, yeah, because he is just one kind of weird dude mm-hmm. in Los Angeles in yeah. 1980. In Hollywood in 1980. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd have to really work to stick out in Hollywood in 1980. Or now, probably. So. <laughs> and that's what I said. That's what I love is that at no point do they show him being, until it gets to like, the last scene, mm-hmm. I guess, but he's never shown as like some smart, devious criminal. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of a dumbass. Like he changes the name on his mailbox mm-hmm. and starts going by the, uh, yeah, Cody Jarrett. Yeah, Cody Jarrett. The uh, I forget. Audie Murphy. Who, no, is no. uh, one of the guys from James, White Heat. James Cagney from White Heat. Yeah, yeah, that was his character. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, but. A, a lot of it rings true, and a lot of it, and part of me is just like, there's no way he could bat that far out of his weight class. And after the second time he was creepy, she would have dropped him. But then I'm like, no, she's film obsessed too. And so he, she's just kind of, oh, he's into movies too. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, okay. But the, and that that's another, I guess, strike against it. Does she not recognize him in that final scene? She's drugged up. Right, but did she not recognize him when she walked in? Uh, I'm not sure. Again, because th- that whole relationship kind of threw me. I had to make it right in my head. Because I was like, how the fuck? There's no way. After after he was a creeper the second time, she'd have kicked him to the curb. Right. You know, especially after especially after a girlfriend said, um, no, yeah. no, just no. This guy, no, he's gonna, your head's going to be in his fridge. Don't. You know, it's that, no. So I had to work. Why would she still? Well, because she's just as film obsessed. That's why she's doing the whole Marilyn thing. And that's why, and it seems silly, but that's why she doesn't leave when he pretends to be a weird count from wherever. Well, exactly. And for, I think for a modeling gig that mm-hmm. she's just left alone in this weird studio with mm-hmm. this dude. And I, I think too, near the end too, I think she goes, I think she bought into his psychosis. I think she bought into like, we're both in the movie now. It was the only even before she was drugged because it seemed like she was going to go anyway. You know what I mean? The drugs didn't even need to be there. Right. So in my head, I again, I had to make it work for me. So it's like, well, she bought into his psychosis and she's just as fucked as he is. And had they run, you know, like, um, you know. See, any professional model shows up to that and they're going to go, I'm fucking leaving right now. Yeah, but I'm... I'm According to this movie, everybody in this whole city that's female is a professional model. Right. So, you, you know, if it wasn't him, it'd be somebody. Right. But this weird, elegant setting. Again, like, 
where did he find the time for this? Yeah, where did he rent all this shit? Unless he uh, found Grandma's secret stash underneath the uh, mattress. Uh, there was no way. But it, I, and I'm used to writing things off. It's a movie, okay? It's the conceit of the film. Yes. But it was in no way shown. You know, had they even hinted that Grandma had a little bit of money? I, well, I know his boss says something about, well, what'd you do with all the insurance money from your grandma's death? Because I, I presume that she owned that building. Okay, okay, yeah, I guess. But that's still not enough to uh, have this elaborate set for this woman that you met at a diner. Yeah, but it looked like it was already a studio. It looked like he either rented it or got the key to it is what I was yeah, thinking. It's possible, but and that cause, is... Yeah, cause that, and, because that didn't that didn't trip my little tripwire. Oh shit! This fuck. Because it looks like a huge ballroom almost. Well, yeah, you know what it does is it looks like it said something something studio on the outside. So we were blow I was, up studio. Yeah. So I was to infer it was just like a studio, but it looks like it was filmed in a uh, a banquet hall. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, a set decorated banquet hall. Which hey, fucking more power to. Oh, them. it looks cool. It yeah. looks great. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm sitting there going because I've worked so many banquet halls. I'm like. That's the best Western. What the fuck? Come on. So did you have a favorite kill? Not really, because to me, this movie wasn't even about the kills. The kills to me were like an afterthought. Really? Because I thought they were all pretty fun and interesting. No, no. I think um, as set pieces, they were great, but it, it's not what I'm remembering this movie for. No, 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 no. And so I can only go by what sticks. So the... The most, my favorite kill, I think, was when he was chasing the girl because he was drinking the blood afterwards. So yes, that was my favorite as well. It wasn't the kill because we didn't really see the kill, which is something as a gore person now. I'm like, well, we didn't see the kill, but that added thing where he took the blood into his fingers, put a little into his mouth, and then got onto the fence post and then put the whole thing on his face. Like I said before, it's just then stood up had a weird moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. And then they, since they do uh, cuts of old films, I believe it is the horror of Dracula that yes. they cut to. And he snaps right back into, Oh no, I am a vampire. Yes. And then licks it off his hands because there, again, there's that switch that you can see happen after he drinks her blood and realizes, Oh fuck. I just drank another human's blood. Nope. 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 I am Dracula. Yeah. And, the cool thing about it, too, is the plausibility factor. You're in Hollywood, Los Angeles, wherever. You're walking down in a full Dracula costume with blood dripping down your face. Who stops you? Nobody. No. Yeah, you're working. Yeah, hi. You know. Especially because I believe it was Halloween, wasn't it? Because he was oh. at a, a yes. Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, either that or, you know, it was like... um. It's like yeah, I talk about the music box constantly, but they used to do like yeah, theme, theme movie nights. nights. Yeah. So if it was Night of Living Dead, everybody come in costume. They'd stop halfway through doing intermission, have comedy troupe come up there and have you come, you know, do the costume show and you know that kind of stuff. So I'm sure that was what was going on. I don't know if it was Halloween or not. I say I, the only reason it made me think that is because uh, when Mickey Rourke and his buddy are busting his balls, they say they say there was a hundred Draculas down at that pier. Where were you? Mm, well, so that was the only thing that really led me to believe that because I don't think that there's ever like a date said. Yeah. yeah again, um, I, I really I didn't, didn't care. It really wouldn't have added anything except that they had the Halloween poster. Right. And when, it, when, old, when the hand and came through. a tourist through, trap poster. Oh, yeah. Ruled. That was the business. But when, he, when his hand came through right where the knife was. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, hell yeah! I, I see what you're doing there, movie. I like that. You, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you got this. You yeah. got this. Again, that's one of those like accident kills, and this is after he has murdered Mickey Rourke. Yeah, but that one, that one showed a little bit more forethought because he knew old boy had a bad heart and had the pills. Yes. So he figured if he fucked with him hard enough, you get the Widowmaker working, you know? Right, but it's not a straight up murder. Well, yeah, it, it's not it, like... It is. It's okay, but it's not a violent murder, I guess. Okay, I'll grant you. Not as violent a murder. <laughs> no. But, um, Again, causing a man that you know has a heart condition to have a heart attack and then kicking his pills away from him, that is a murder. Yes. Don't get me wrong. But again... It's, it could be looked at as an accident. Even the other are from a distance with a gun, okay? At no time was he directly involved face-to-face with -face, kicking. You know, with a kill, kill. You know, like with the visceral, like I'm stabbing you or I'm 
choking you to death or I'm doing these things. It was either from a distance with that tool, the, the gun, or through happenstance or, you know, oh, the guy happens to have a heart attack. I know he can't if I kick the pills. What if he had taken the pill? What would he have done? You know, would he have gone through and bashed his head in? It has never been intimated. He could have, you know, him taking... No, because even after he shoots Mickey Rourke, his hand is shaking like a fucking leaf. Yeah. So we don't know if he would have been capable of it directly had the guy taken the pill, which, you know, again, adds to this movie a little bit because it seems like there was some thought to it, but somehow dropped in the execution. Maybe there's a... Maybe there's a scene that got cut that explains a little more or gives us a little more context for the jumbled. I don't know. Or was the jumbled an artistic choice? Again, I don't know. And I, again, the, not only the emotion in his face after all of the kills, that final scene is kind oh. of a fucking bummer. Yeah, it is. Because, we t- you know, it's still, I would say at its heart, this movie is anti-authoritarian and at its heart it, it's trying to say well movies don't really do that it's it, you know insanity causes these things not the movies um, I think it, it's showing certain things in certain lights and even though the cartoony Moriarty character I think it was probably trying to espouse what they were showing they were telling not showing yeah which is the only Big time. Thing, which is I, I think without the Moriarty and maybe with a little bit more in-depth characterization or a little bit more writing on the outsides of this, we could have done without, you know, the harmonica solo and the the, the two rails yeah. and a bump and, you know, a little bit of softcore. We, we could have done without that whole thing if they would have just shorted up with a little bit more writing, a little bit more sprinkling of info, you know, that type of thing on the outside so we could accept the message without being hit over the head with it. But, and that's... Also, our through the lens of 2023, when we've watched oh. a lot of these complex movies, if you were to make that in 1980, does that sell? Mm, yes, because I don't think that audiences were as hip, so the message would sell because they would have caught it in retrospect, and it would have gotten even more. Oh fuck! And a couple of righties would have figured out they got hoodwinked, and everybody been talking. You know, it would have been an interesting thing because it would still sell. It. It sold regardless with a fucking male masturbation frontal scene. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's a big fuck you to anybody. Yeah, that's true. At the time. And that was, in and of itself, say what you will about this movie, in and of itself, that was a statement. That particular scene was a very specific statement. And effectively, and it, this is going to sound stupid, but effectively showing Marilyn Monroe's tits. Yeah. Because she is a dead ringer for oh, yeah. Marilyn Monroe. Well, she was a Marilyn Monroe um, impersonator in Australia. Yeah. Big time. Like, made money and shit. Yeah, she is spot on. Mm-hmm. And then when you see, like later, when you see them, him standing in that booth, and you see the poster of Marilyn, in in my mind, Marilyn's, you know, ba-ba-boom. But I forgot, in, in the pictures, you see, she does not have gigantic boobs. Like in my imagination, you know, because I don't really, I couldn't tell you exactly what Marilyn Monroe looks like because in my head it's a cartoon. Right. You know what I mean? But when I see the picture, oh, she does not have enormous breasts. Oh, and then I look and I'm like, down to everything. I'm like, holy shit, down to the hips. And I'm like, damn. She is spot on. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, and, and that's why she didn't need to act because she was, again, uh, she was more of an object or an icon in this for movie. his obsession. For his obsession, yeah. and Because and, I really like that scene when he's sitting outside at like the food stand. Mm-hmm. You ever see Marilyn Monroe coming out of the brown derby? And the guy's like, she's been dead for years, man. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, or where he accosts the lady outside of like the apartment building. Dude. What room are you in? Mm-hmm. Did, did you know that these three starlets stayed in room 223? Bet you didn't know that, did you? Yeah. And just starting to crack in public. And that, that always, again, a lot of things ring really true. And this movie, again, could have been helped with just the choice of one acting style. Everybody across the map, we're, we're going to all maintain this balance. This is, this is as high as you can go, and this is as low as you can go. Okay? Stay within these parameters and try to work with each other, work off with each other, you know, try to match the energy. 
So but at the end where he's on the roof and after he's been shot and he's just wandering back and forth and you can tell he's completely lost it, you know, like And is shocked. Yeah, I I I am little Caesar. I am the thin man. I am the man who knew too much. Uh, we finally made it, Ma. As top, he's top of the world, Ma. Yeah, as he's standing shot in a police standoff on the roof of a theater, like. But that was one of the other statements this movie made too, because there was a lot of violence in Los Angeles in the eighties, and a lot of it. That's when the police were becoming. They were still corrupt as fuck, but they were becoming more militarized. They were starting to get military gear. And um, this is even before the 90s. They were starting to get, like, all the guys were coming out of Vietnam, going on and the L.A. Got force. Snipers. So they got this, they got that, and these guys are okay with shooting because they do. And um, don't don't shoot until he points a gun at us, And which is weird because the entire movie was more like, shoot every fucking body and fuck the cesspool of his city and fuck them all and... Yeah, he is so mad at just the existence of Dr. Jerry Moriarty. Mm-hmm. I fucking shoot him right now if I fucking could. But oh, he Mori- says something about his parking space. Like, don't worry, Captain. I ride a bike. It's like all oh, these goddamn conservationists. And you could Ugh. see the look of disgust on his face. I was like, oh yes, that was beautiful, beautiful. Because <laughs> I bet you, I bet you, Jack Webb approved. Oh <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> but that was um. I think they were speaking to the violence at the time because um, he did kind of a little bit of a 180, the police chief, because, you know, Moriarty, oh, Moriarty's hippiness wore off on him a little bit. Don't don't shoot him unless he points the gun down. Don't shoot him unless he points the gun down. Okay, boss. Bam. Ba- <laughs> like, not even, it's not even two beats later. Boom, just caps him one. I told you not to shoot. Until he, okay, stand down. Don't shoot unless he points the gun. All right, gotcha. Here, you, um, yes, sir, boss. Not shooting over here, boss. Until at the very end, it's just like, you know what? Fuck it. Light him up. And he's still going. I loved it. It's still going just like Cagney in the movies. And But he still depicted it. You know, it's like when you have a protracted death scene, when you know they should have been dead, it can go one of two ways. And I liked how it went with this movie because I know it shouldn't have gone on that long. Obviously, he got high caliber rounds, relatively close range for a rifle, mm-hmm. and he caught eight rounds center mass, or eight to ten rounds center mass. He's moving around, okay? But we had just seen the other movies where Cagney got shot with fucking Tommy guns. Moving around and still talking, boss. Uh-huh. The worst Cagney imitation ever in the history of cinema was done. I got you. It didn't even get nasal. I got you, ma. I'm like, dude, come on. You, have you ever <laughs> seen? This is the 80s. You have seen Rich Little. You can do fucking uh, shitty Cagney better than that. But I like that he did it, though, oh, at he, all, because it's... That watching, he, he, and he goes in and out of it in mm-hmm. scenes, mm-hmm. and it's great. And he commits, and that's what makes it real. Because, again, in my head, this is a movie. He should be able to do a Cagney imitation, right? But real people, a lot of them can't do any kind of imitation. So it was like a psychosis hit, and he's going to do it whether he sounds like Cagney or not, because in his head he's Cagney. Whether the voice matched or didn't, and he just owned it. He got the mannerisms down close. You know, and so that added to it. That added to the realism, which added to I think the again we we speak to the quality of acting. And like the part after he meets the producer oh, and yeah. gets out and walks in, and that's when yeah it says Aunt Stella. Mm-hmm. Like we finally made it, Ma. We finally made it. And why does it hurt? Because oh, his conscience is weighing on him. And it's so fucking good. Like, it's it's very emotionally effective. Mm, yeah. And, and, it, and it comes out of no, almost nowhere in this movie, too, where it's like, God damn. And like, that leads back to, I don't know what to think of this. I think that, I think, you know what I think we should do? Just as a quick side project. Uh, not that we have any time. But I'm going to try to rewatch this movie and give you an honest answer. Because usually, again, at, at the beginning of the nine or seven times out of ten, complicated, uh, I have two or three answers for you for the question, did I like it? 
I will say that I did like this movie. And I liked it in not even just kind of a train wreck way, but more of, this is a curiosity. Yeah. It's a slasher movie without the slasher. It hits all the points of every slasher movie, but doesn't quite get, get to it. It takes all the points of a psychological horror, but doesn't quite pull the trigger. But everything kind of melds. And there's, yeah, the dark comedy elements. Again, he's never wearing pants. Right, but I have to, again, I make, I've been making a point, because when I first started this, I would try to get as much information as I could and then watch the movie so I could sound like whatever. But then I'd have preconceived notions or I might parrot an idea from somebody else or, you know, paraphrase somebody without realizing. So I said, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. And I forgot the point I was going to make about that, but... Is that going through this and the way oh, yes. that it starts and the way that it ends are like two different movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I wasn't able to look at it from a comedic or a non-comedic because first of all, I had to discern the direction the movie might go so that I can settle in and start paying attention. Because my first five minutes of any movie, if I don't know anything about it, is what, what, what is this? Where are we going? Who's this guy? What, what's going on here? You know, if I know, because I know zero. Because they sh- introduce and show quite a few scenes of Dr. Jerry Moriarty mm-hmm. early in the film, and then he disappears for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Like, well, why was any of that there? And then when it comes back to it, it doesn't really seem necessary. Right. You could have just had the police just in general. But again, that was a case of they decided to tell not show. So maybe the filmmaker assumed that we would not get it in 1981. Or 79 when this movie was made. Because you did make that point now that I think about it. they, If they would have taken all the Moriarty stuff out, we would have been able to read what we wanted to read in it. Or we'd be able to maybe pick it up their message. a lot darker. Right. And then the comedy bits would have popped harder. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, again, just the strange decision of why is he never wearing pants? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's unnecessary, but it's also just kind of endearing. Because we could say that, I would say not so much why, is he wearing, why isn't he wearing pants. This is Los Angeles in the summer, and he lives on the top floor of an old shitty house. I get why you wouldn't wear pants. Just why the fuck are you wearing three layers and a fucking vest is more of the question. Yeah, he's dressing up. On, he's like Donald Ducking it. Yeah. And he's I'm, dressing up on the top with nothing down below. Like, man... What is happening? Why, why is he not wearing pants again? No, again. Why is he pantsless? Why is he talking to the male lady without pants on? It's more like everybody, every other dude in that entire neighborhood answers the door just in their chonies, okay? He decides that he's going to wear the top half because he's a gangster. But... You, know, you know what he, the top half of him looks like? And I was thinking about this when I was on my Harry way Harry Anderson? From... Yes! He looks like <laughs> Harry the Hat! Do you know why? Because in 1980 and 81, everybody looked like Harry the fucking hat. Because Indiana Jones was big and that hat was everybody wore. And vests were big. I can't believe you just read my mind, James. That was amazing. (laughs) So all of a sudden I was just thinking like, he looked like fucking Harry the hat. He did, he did. It's a a Cheers reference. A real timely Cheers reference. Actually, it's a Saturday Night Live reference if you're as old as I am. Well, either way, I knew it from Cheers. So eat my ass. Not now, we're on air. So, James, I guess it really comes down to, would you recommend Fade to Black? Yes, but only for one reason. To find out if anybody else likes it. Or or why they dislike it. Because yeah. I couldn't really tell you why I super like the entire film. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't tell you why I dislike it either. I. The only things that bother me are just like traditional shit because it's an old movie, okay? Pacing's off. From what I'm used to, the shorthand's different. Um, the tropes, although familiar, they just didn't quite hit right. You know, they're just little oddities, but as a whole, I'm going to go on record as saying I like this movie and I would recommend it, but I would, again, recommend it to my um, real, real film nerd buddies. Have you Have you seen everything else? You should watch Fade to Black. Right. Or I can sit there and go, hey, have you seen Fade to Black? And they'd pull out like, oh, let me tell you. I can't. They'd pull out a picture of the guy from Fade to Black. Oh, and they played at the fucking rib and we saw it and blood is there, you know. Well, and 
two last things. Yeah. Did you happen to notice who the producer was? No, I did not. That is Holden from Blade Runner. The fuck out of here. Yeah. Oh my god. As soon god. as he popped up, I was like, "Oh, that's Holden." Yeah, there there were a couple other people, and I w- I should have written them down because I had a couple pulls, and I'm just like, "Oh, that's such and such." Oh my god, that's such and such. I mean, I I felt good with Cobra Kai, but there were three big ones, and I can't remember them now. The the other just fun fact about this film, uh, Gwen Guilford, Lady Cop, uh huh, was pregnant at the time of filming this. Oh yeah. Do you know who the child in her belly was? No. Chris Pine. The fuck out of here. Yeah. Ah, oh, Jesus. Again, just that, another weird element. I'm just like, hmm. Can you imagine being Chris Pine going, and all of a sudden have the thought, how many people have run, run, rubbed one out to my mom? God damn it. I mean, she wasn't Marilyn. No, but I'm sure she's made a few magazines. Oh, yeah, probably. You know, this is the California in the 80s. Coke yeah. budget. So, you know what? I think after our conversation here today, I am going to uh, put my stamp on, I do like this movie. Okay, we need to mark this day down, because this is the first time in the history of this podcast where you didn't have an opinion at the beginning, but you came around after we talked about it. And, and it's not that I didn't have it. Obviously, I had strong opinions on certain parts of it, right. but as a, cohe- like a cohesive film, I couldn't quite land on it, but I think we've gotten... To the point through our conversation where I do appreciate the slight comedy bits because they're yeah. not jokes. And I think I, they're I, just I, odd. If I go back and take a look at it at, from a comedy lens, like, okay, well, the, okay, let's take a look at it from this angle. It, and maybe it's more of a parody than I know. Maybe there, there's things being parodied that I don't remember. You know what I mean? It could be a lot of parody. It could be, but the parody could be so, so spot on as to seem. You you know what I mean? Not parody anymore. And that's what I mean is that they're not jokes, right? But <laughs> if there's things that are, that are just inherently funny, right? But again, there's probably sly references that I don't even get because again, I'm watching this a million years later mm-hmm. from a lens that has not been dusted off in a while. So, and then I I do think that the horror elements work really well in this film. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about the emotion. I'm talking about just the flat out horror elements. Oh yeah, I think are well done. Because when we think a lot of times in these movies, I I used to be really fearful of these movies because my, my anxiety would get so spiked that I could no longer differentiate. So everything scared me for about a week after because I couldn't get out of the scared spiral. But now that I can, the uh, I'm going to be revisiting a lot of movies that I couldn't of this genre from the era. But I think as a, as a pair, like the part the elements that could be pair or that could be parody of other movies of the genre and the area of the time, because um, I took a look at like the people they should, the street people they showed the types of things that they were showing, I think was trying to make a comment about that life and how, a lot, you know, the struggling and this and that, and how yeah. life is cheap. Nobody's anybody, right? But everybody's somebody, you know. And um, and how cheap life was, and and I think they were really trying to make statements, but I missed a lot of them again because I think they hit the nail on the head too hard, you know. Yeah. So I just like people who write parody songs. I think they're gonna be great parody songs, but the people, uh, the people who they're making fun of, adopt their song as their own. I, I think that they probably did a lot of that, which we're thinking, well, that's kind of clunky and heavy handed. What are they? That's kind of chauvinistic. No, they were trying to highlight that by showing what at the time was a an exaggerated, uh, you know, look at that, where it just seems like normal behavior now. Right. So I think I, we I might be missing a lot of the comedy elements, I guess, in a long, long winded way of saying. So yeah, everybody, yeah. go watch go watch Fade to Black. Yeah. It's not bad. Yeah, it doesn't suck. But hey, James, yes. speaking of people who suck, mm-hmm. where can people find us? <laughs> they can find us at horrorvomitpodcast at gmail.com. I don't know why I'm laughing randomly. Actually, I do. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see. They can find us on the Facebook. They can find us on the podcasters and the Instagrams. Uh-huh. And we're looking for the stars and the five-word comments so that we can get on the algorithms. Yep, it really does spread the word, and then James and I can retire from our uh, whimsical lives and just talk about movies mm-hmm. <laughs> with those big, big podcasting bucks. 
Oh, yeah. We're just going to be rolling in the dough. Man, I really should stop making that joke, but it is very funny to me. Let's throw all $3 on the couch and roll in it like Demi Moore. And then somehow lose it because that couch will eat things. Oh, yes. Or the raccoon will get it. Oh, yeah. The garage raccoon. Oh, oh, just wait. There there are some HPVs coming up that have uh, appearances by said raccoon. So what would you name a raccoon that lives in a suicide garage? Uh, Dale. There you go. I don't know. <laughs> You're a little conspiracy theorist up there. <laughs> yeah, sure. Dale Gribble. That's my pet raccoon's name. Dale, Dale Gribble. Gribble. Dale Gribble in a suicide garage. Say Tail Gribble. Huh? Yeah. Because that's better. God damn you. <laughs> Fuck you for being smarter on accident, you piece of shit. Can we be done here? Push the button. <laughs>